0: So we're starting 12 weeks. I think it's 12 weeks in the book of Isaiah. Uh, But I actually want to read um, a verse that I think should be read at almost every preaching of the Old Testament. I always want to come back to this. So this is from Luke 24. I want to read from Luke 24, verse 44 through 47 or 8. And then I also want to read from 1 Peter. And then I want to pray for the reading, for the preaching of the word. If I can make it to 1 Peter. Almost there. Okay. Who's got the Luke verse open? Anybody? Grant, will you stand up and and read that for us? 44 through 42. 9. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from the earth. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, the of my Father until Amen. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 through 12. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets Father, I pray that you bless our time in the word tonight, that uh, you would make it effective, that it would bear fruit in our lives. And Lord, as we uh, head into this book of Isaiah, Lord, I pray that just like you opened the scriptures, beginning with Moses and the the prophets and the Psalms, uh, you proclaimed the gospel and you proclaimed the true meaning of all these things. Lord, I pray that that very same spirit would be upon us as we work our way. Uh, through this incredible book, uh, this, this anointed, spirit-filled book of uh, all things pertaining to the kingdom. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, open our imagination. Lord, open our uh, senses to really receive uh, your word and your truth uh, from the book of Isaiah. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to give an intro tonight to Isaiah, and this is, uh, this is a daunting book, and uh, 12 weeks isn't enough, 20 weeks isn't enough, 100 weeks isn't enough, all right? And so I want to introduce our time in Isaiah, but my goal in introducing the book and, and leading us into this time is, I'm just going to tell you right now, I mean, my main point tonight is that we need to be full of this book. That's the big point. We ought to be full of the book of Isaiah as a people, as individuals, and as a church. Uh, this book should be uh, a, a foundational text for us. So it's a large book. We're not going to scratch the surface tonight. We, we, we do have some time, right? We have a little bit more time than we usually have to go through a book. But I feel a little bit like I'm standing outside of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and people are walking by on their way in and I'm trying to tell them what to look look for. <laughs> how do you how do you start? Because they're gonna get inside and, and right, what, what the person told them to look for is, is just gonna basically evaporate and they're just gonna be caught up. That's what I hope happens, right? I hope I give you a few points, but then you go in and you see it for yourself. So it's sort of like a you know I'm at the information desk. In, in the Yosemite Visitor Center. Like once you start getting out and walking around, awe is pretty much going to overtake you. And so I, I hope that that happens, right? I hope that I can kind of point you in the right direction so that you can enter into this, the world of Isaiah and, and be captured with what the Lord is saying, right? Be captured like Isaiah himself was captured. He saw the Lord high and lifted up the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord. This is a vision, right? It says the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. A vision or a book of prophecy is different than a book of narrative. We've been in narrative for a little while in the Old Testament. This is a different animal. Okay, this is We have to approach this differently. This is a vision. So not everything, it's not linear, right? There's not a beginning, middle, and end. There's not a plot, all right? What there are are images and um, themes and layers that keep coming in. It's, it's much like a symphony, okay? There's a musical theme here, a musical theme there, and it will come back, and it will build, and there's variations, and... That's what, we're, that's what we're stepping into, okay? This is a book that needs to be experienced as much as, as read and studied, okay? So I hope that you can open yourself up to experience uh, this book. It needs to wash over us, get stuck in our heads, right? You know how, how a song kind of, or, or a, a theme from a, a song kind of gets stuck in your head, I hope Isaiah gets stuck in our heads. I hope we wake up thinking about a line from Isaiah, because um, that's that's what this book is for. It's meant to be to, to to worm its way into our consciousness and just kind of live there. All right. So uh, uh, an outline it, the outline of this book is pretty interesting. Okay, there's 66 chapters, and some people make a deal out of this. You can't say that Isaiah meant this, but. I think it's interesting to note that there's 66 chapters. Chapters were added later, obviously. But there's 66 chapters, just like there's 66 books in the Bible. Um, the first section is primarily about judgment is in chapters 1 through 39, which there's 39 chapters in the Old Testament, right? And there's 27 uh, books in the New Testament. Uh, so the... The second half is about comfort and hope and salvation. Um, so that's the that's the most basic way to outline the book of Isaiah, one through 39, 40 through sixty six. Ones pr- predominantly heading to judgment, and then in between there is exile, and then coming out of exile. The first word of chapter forty is comfort. Comfort my people. All right, it's a great. Uh, a great part of what is that comfort? Is that in the Handel's Messiah? I think it's in there. It's a great, great part of Handel's Messiah. Jerem, is that correct? Yeah, that's it. You come out. It's like the beginning of the gospel. Okay, um, it's post judgment. It's judgment has happened, and now there's redemption. But within those sections, let me give you a few smaller sections to break it down because one through thirty-nine is a pretty, pretty big chunk to swallow. Uh, one through twelve. Flesh out Judah and Jerusalem. remember, this is the vision that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It's Judah and Jerusalem's situation. All right? Your situation. They have rebelled, they are under the judgment of God, and God's basically spelling out, All right, here is the situation, y'all. You're not understanding me. You're not following me. You've been faithless to the covenant. And now let me tell you what's coming your way. Chapters 13 through 27 are about, and this is really interesting, it's about God and the nations. It's kind of shifted gears. It's not directed toward Judah and Jerusalem. It's directed toward Babylon. It's directed toward Damascus, Syria. All right, so these prophecies Isaiah bears for the nations around Israel. We see God dealing with, he's judging the nations as well. He's not just judging Judah and Jerusalem. 28 through 35 really discuss man's ways versus God's ways. There's a famous passage in Isaiah in chapter 55 where he says, my ways are not your ways. We really see that fleshed out all the way back in in chapter 28 through 35. And this is where uh, God is chastising them for seeking help from Egypt going down into Egypt for help. Why don't you trust me? I'm the one who can actually save you. Okay, and so God gets into that situation. 36 through 39, Turn. it actually is a, a narrative interlude, okay? And it, t- it tells the story of Hezekiah. And this is when uh, the Babylonian envoys come to Hezekiah, and they begin to, remember the Rabshakeh? Um, he, he begins to insult and, and question Israel's trust. All right. And so 36 to 39 are a narrative interlude that really get at the heart of, are you going to trust God? In whom is your trust, you could say, is the theme of that narrative. In whom is your trust? Hezekiah succeeds. It's, this is interesting because in that interlude, the uh, the main threat shifts from Assyria which uh, Hezekiah overcomes the threat of Assyria by putting his trust in the Lord, but then Babylon shows up and he ends up falling. And that sets up, obviously we know the story, Babylon is the one that takes Jerusalem into exile. Assyria had taken the Northern Kingdom and they kept threatening the Southern Kingdom, but luckily there were some good kings that happened to trust God. And so God judged Assyria, didn't let them conquer Judah and Jerusalem. But behind them was coming Babylon, who was even worse and more powerful. All right? and that's what Isaiah was pointing toward. Yes, Assyria is the threat, but guys, there's an even greater threat, and it's it's too little, too late at this point. It's coming. You need to repent. Okay. Forty through sixty-six. Um, within there, there's kind of two larger, sec- uh, two smaller sections. Forty through fifty-four are about comfort. This is one way you can kind of describe it. Comfort and its cost. The cost of comfort. This is where we get the great passages on the servant, the suffering servant. And, and the way in which God brings salvation to Jerusalem is he himself bears their sins. Right? And some of the be- beautiful passages in the Old Testament come from that section. So it's comfort and its cost. Okay, 55 through 66 are about the new creation. This vision, this revelation of, it's it's much like the book of Revelation, this vision of where it's all headed, where history is headed. What's the the end of everything? What's the fulfillment of everything? And so Isaiah, many people call this the the book that contains, it's, it's the fullest um, it's the most well-rounded book in terms of theology. It's the most well, well-rounded single book in the whole Bible in terms of theology. You've got everything from uh, sin and the fall and judgment to the redemption to the, the, the suffering that brings redemption and forgiveness and then the, the, what's coming at the end. It's, it's really a microcosm of the whole scripture, which I think is why it's so cool that there's 66 chapters, right? It really does encompass the whole arc of biblical theology in this book. Um, okay, so some major themes. Here's my, my paltry attempt at, at saying, hey, why don't you look for this and this and this as you're on the way in to <laughs> see the the great works of art or, or to see Yosemite for yourself. All right. Um, number one, Judgment. Judgment. And remember, judgment is one of the uh, is one of the foundations, right? Having an understanding of, of God's judgment, what that entails, um, that there is a final judgment, but also that God does work to judge his people. Um, that's a really important part of having a relationship with God and understanding who he is. Luckily, God has put Jesus on the throne and our judge is a very good judge. Right? He's the one you want judging you. Because he judges in absolute justice and righteousness. And he's rich in love. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's who you want on the, on the, on the bench. But judgment. And in this case, why, why, why judgment? Why are they being judged? Well, in a nutshell, they've been unfaithful to the covenant. Israel has been unfaithful to holding up their end of, of the covenant that God made with them particularly in the form of injustice. Isaiah is concerned with injustice among his people, idolatry, pride, just plain old evil deeds, (laughs) wickedness, and also trust in worldly powers and mistrust of God. Okay, so for all these things and for, for others, judgment is coming upon Israel. And in what, what form will the judgment of God take? Primarily the form of allowing foreign powers to come and, and lay siege to Jerusalem, but ultimately to allow foreign powers to come in and, and uproot Jerusalem from the land and take them into exile. Okay, that's the form of the judgment of God. Um, second major theme would be as a balance to judgment, hope. Okay. All judgment in this book, if you, if you read it as a, as a whole, all judgment is ultimately toward a redemptive end. The exile itself and all the judgment and all the, all the destruction that's coming upon Jerusalem ultimately is working a redemptive end, right? It says that, um, in, in one uh, passage on judgment that, that it's all going to be chopped down and burned and then the stump itself is even going to be burned. But then there's going to be a holy seed. Everything, everything must go, but the very core of it will remain. And we need to get all the way down to the nubs and st- start again, right? And Jesus is that stump. The holy seed is its stump. Okay, so it, judgment is coming, but it's judgment that leads to a purging and a purifying and a rebirth, a redemption of Israel. Exile is not the end, right? Exile is not the end of God's dealings with his people. Exile is the next step of the process. So what, is there, what do we hope for in Isaiah? What does Isaiah say to hope for? Hope for salvation, hope for justice, hope for restoration, comfort security and safety, and hope that he can actually work in Israel to somehow deal with the sins that had separated them from God, but also make them faithful to the covenant themselves. Right? Make us righteous. Okay? Make us faithful people. Theme number three, the Messiah. This is a big one, the Messiah. And there's actually three, three major portraits of the Messiah, right? The, this, the, the scripture that I read from 1 Peter is interesting because it says that the prophets who prophesied were trying to f- figure out what, what is the Messiah and what, how, who is it and what's, it gonna, what's he going to look like? When's he going to come, Right? In what form the Spirit of Christ was indicating in them, ultimately, Jesus showed us that the Messiah was all of these things that Isaiah was pointing to. Uh, So the first one would be a king, right? And actually, the word Messiah just means anointed one. And so any king of Israel would have been the Messiah at that point, okay? Just the anointed one, God's anointed, God's Messiah. But we see, <laughs> we see in Isaiah, every time we, we come up against a one of the the actual kings, uh, the kings, the sons of David, physical sons of David, um, they're sick or dying or dead. Right in the year that King Uzziah died, <laughs> and then Ahaz is getting preached at. So the line, the, the the Davidic kings are not doing much. But there's also this hope in this undercurrent of there will be a Davidic king on the throne. Um, Chapter 9 is interesting in this this regard. Chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So it's on one hand, it sounds like a, you know, like the God's fulfillment to his promise to David to give him one of his sons to sit on the throne. Right. But also it says, and he will be called mighty God. So is this God or is this a man? What is this? The other portrait, and we'll, we'll talk more about that king as we go. The other portrait of the Messiah that we have comes in the middle section. Actually, another way to, one way, it's an interesting way uh, to outline the book is um, the first third of the book, about, about chapters 1 through 37, maybe the first half of the book, is called the book of the king. The middle section is called the book of the servant. And the last section is called the book of the conqueror. All right, those are the three portraits that we have of the Messiah. He's a king, he's also a servant, he's also a conqueror, a warrior. So this this portrait of the servant, that's where we get uh, that middle section. It it's really is, it talks about the servant. And and he, he, he refers to, Isaiah sees himself as, as a servant of God. But he's talking about a servant. This is... Um, this is where you get Isaiah 53, right? Where it's the suffering servant. So the portraits that we have of, of the Messiah, the messianic hope in Isaiah, take the form of a king, of a servant, and of a conqueror. And the conqueror is really in, in chapters 55 through 66. And two things about, that are true about all three of these portraits when he talks about this person, this figure, Right, it's kind of shadowy, right? This is the Old Testament shadows and types. Feeling out, who is, how is God going to do all this? What, what form is it going to take? That's why it's multifaceted, okay? It's, it's a king, but he's also a servant. He lays down his life for the people. And he's also a conqueror. He tramples the wicked who destroy his people, right? So he's all three of those. The Messiah in each of these portraits... One of his primary characteristics is righteousness, and it's very important. We're going to be studying Romans later this year, so you need to note that, okay? Righteousness. The king is righteous in that he, he, his throne, he, he rules in a righteous way. The servant is righteous, it says in chapter 53, that it says, he will make many Righteous. By his righteousness, he will make many to be counted righteous. And then the conqueror is righteous in his execution of the judgment and the the completion of the victory of God. And it's also interesting that whenever we're talking about the Messiah, whenever Isaiah is prophesying about the Messiah. um, Keep your eyes open for righteousness, but also that the Messiah is described in both human and divine terms. Right in the king, Uzziah, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on the throne. My eyes have seen the King, Yahweh the King. So who's King here? Right? Is Yahweh the King, or is their Davidic King? Okay, and it's both. Right? We know from Jesus is the Son of David and the Son of Yahweh and is Yahweh Himself and sits on the throne. So all these things end up being true. They're not they're not contradictory at all. He's a king, he's a servant, he's a conqueror, he's human and he's divine. So this this multifaceted, multi-layered portrait of the Messiah that Isaiah has ends up being exactly right. <laughs> it is pretty amazing. All right, was that number 3, number 4, holiness. Holiness. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and What were the seraphim saying to? Holy, 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 holy. The book of Isaiah has more uses uh, of the word holy than the rest of the Old Testament combined. It's not even close. He is the prophet of holiness, and there's three. There's it's it's the threefold holy, right? There's three. Three layers of holiness. One is God's transcendence, right? Holy just means separate, set apart. Other, transcendent. So that God is holy in that way. God's also holy in that he's perfect. He is deadly to sinners who come before him. His holiness is is what, what emanates in his judgment. But then there's the third holy, And that is that God's holiness makes holy what it touches. And this is where Isaiah, he says, holy, 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 woe is me. How can I be in the presence of this God? I am done for. I am toast. And God says, no, let me touch you with this coal. Now your sin has been atoned for. Now you are holy. Right? The holiness of God is a mortal threat to sinners But to those who desire to repent, it's the source of holiness. Isn't that pretty cool? It can either kill you or make you holy. Holy, holy, holy. Transcendence, judgment, and salvation. Next theme is servanthood. Servanthood. After the appearance of the suffering servant in the middle portion of the book, in the middle chapters of the book. God's people, the nation of Israel, are increasingly referred to as servants. So there's not just a servant that does his thing. And now the people can go on their merry way. It's that this servant has shown, well, how do you have a just city? How do you have righteousness when each person takes on the attitude of a servant? And that theme is not just in that middle section. It's all through the book, right? Again, back in Isaiah's vision of the Lord, his encounter with God. God says, hey, we need someone to go. Who will go for us? And he says, send me. That's a servant. Who will go? I'll go send me. Okay, so God's looking for servants, for his people to be, to take on the form of servants. What number are we at? This is number six? The city. The city. Isaiah is also called the, the, the book of the city. And I didn't realize, I mean, I kind of knew that that was a theme, but then I started looking at it more, more closely. And it's a major theme of the book of Isaiah. Um, If you look, especially in chapters 24 through 26, there's there's a a tale of two cities in there, the city of man, the corrupt city, city of Babylon versus the city that God is creating and synonyms for it. And this this will really kind of expand your view of this whole theme of the city in Isaiah, not just the word city, but also Jerusalem, which is the name of the city. Zion, right? Zion is sort of a, a unique prophetic word for uh, a way of describing the city of God. Zion is an actual place, but it, it sort of refers to more of the the spiritual reality of the city of God. Zion is is the city within the city, Jerusalem. Zion, and anytime it talks about the Mount, the Mount or the mountains, right? Jerusalem was up on the Mount. Remember, the temple was on Mount Moriah. And so anytime, like in chapter 2, where it says, the mountain of the Lord will be established as the highest of all mountains, it's talking about the city of Jerusalem. Okay, And it's with Jerusalem primarily that God is dealing. He says how the faithful city has become harlot. How the faithful city has become a harlot. In chapter 4, he says in his dealings with city of Jerusalem, Uh, chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors in Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, And cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem from from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and shelter. So God's dealing with the city, purifying the city. So that he can come and dwell there. And so the city isn't just the literal city of Jerusalem. The city is the people of God. The way that the people of God are described is, is we are the city. Okay? And you, you look ahead again to Revelation. Um, draws heavily on this idea of the city. The city of God. The heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride for her husband. The city being the bride. Just watch for that. Watch for that imagery. Okay? Number seven, I didn't mean to have a a perfect seven, but this worked out well. Number seven is the blessing of all nations. The blessing of all nations. The covenant has always included the eventual blessing of all nations. And not just from Abraham onward, but from Eden onward. Right? God was determined to redeem all the world back to himself and and, and put things in motion. To do so, global redemption spreading to all humanity, but as Grant read, beginning at Jerusalem. Right? Good news will be proclaimed to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's what Isaiah is describing. Global redemption spreads to all humanity, but also global judgment global judgment to those who refuse to acknowledge the worthiness of the one who bore all sins and opened up the way of salvation. We get a picture in the, in the final 10 chapters of Isaiah of the fate of those who ultimately refuse this way that God has opened up by taking our sins onto himself, bearing the, the iniquity. Those who refuse to accept that there's no place for them in the city of God and so they are, they are separated from God and and outside the gates permanently, okay? Because as he says in the Song of the Vineyard, what more can I do for my vineyard, right? The death of Jesus was the ultimate, what more can I do? If that's not enough for you to come back to me and repent, there's nothing left for me. And it's your sins, Isaiah says, that have made a separation between you and God. It's not his Will, it's not any lack of willingness or love for you or compassion on his part. It's your sins you refuse to acknowledge and to trust the one who bore your sins in his own body. I love the, the songs that we sang tonight were great. All of them. The truth in there. This is the truth in Isaiah. Right? But it was my sin that held him there. It was the sin. And on him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. Okay? But those who refuse to follow that God and to walk in his light and to to, to, um, receive his spirit, there is punishment and there is separation for them. But to those who would turn from any nation, they come streaming into the Lord and all the nations bring their glory into Zion. It's a beautiful picture. Every tribe and every tongue. Um, All right. So. I love this book. It captivates me. Uh, but I'm not just speaking. I hope you don't hear me just speaking as like a lover of literature and poetry because I, I really get into that. I dig it. Um, this is much deeper than that. Okay? It's not just literary. It's not just aesthetic. All right. This is a book that will change your life if you let it. All right. Um, think about this. The New Testament writers... Paul, Jesus himself had Isaiah's world and language living inside of them. They had absorbed the book. They had internalized it. They thought in Isaiah terms. They imagined things in Isaiah metaphors. Jesus, (laughs) Jesus identified himself. As someone out of the book of Isaiah. Remember that? He goes, he takes to the scroll. He opens up to the book of Isaiah. And he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He drew his identity from this book. Are we disciples of Jesus? Should we not also internalize this book? That he devoted time and meditation and memory. Let's follow Jesus. Let's follow Paul. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. They lived in this book, and it lived in them. And I will encourage us to to be that kind of people as well. It will make you more like Jesus. It will make you more like Paul. Read and memorize Isaiah. Paul drew on the book of Isaiah to help explain who Jesus was and to help build the church. Okay? Did you get this point? This is an important book. All right? So this is the application of tonight, right? There's, uh, there's no call to repentance. There may be, as we get into this, there may be some pretty, some pretty stark calls to repentance. There may be some pretty amazing uh, words of encouragement that pierce your soul from this book. But the application and my challenge to you tonight is to commit to soaking in this book for these next 12 weeks. See what it can do. Meditate on it. I I mentioned meditation, I think, in my email. Meditation just means to to chew. To just take a little piece and chew it. It means ruminate. Like a cow. right? Goes up and down. Up and down. You chew it. And each more, it gets a little more digested. Each time it gets a little more digested. That's That's how we meditate on the word. Okay? You can't expect instant results. That's not the point of meditation. I want to feel amazing about myself now. Meditate, meditate, meditate. That's not how we do it. That's how the world does meditation. Right? Meditation is, is in vogue now. It's part of self-care. Right? We're not talking about that. I'm talking about using the word of God to, to center your mind, to shape your thought processes, allowing it to kind of get in there and get stuck. That's what, we're, that's what we want to aim for. And then obviously memorization. So meditation and memorization are two sides of the same coin. Ways of internalizing uh, Scripture. Okay. There's study and there's reading. There's large chunk reading, but that's, that's breadth. And we want to go for depth as well. That's why I kind of had us reading through it at a, at a pretty quick pace by Easter. But we have a lot of time to also pick out sections and meditate. So I encourage you to pick out a few sections per week that you're meditating on. And discuss those. Talk about those with, uh, with your friends. And, and you know testify to how, you know, as we go, what, what, uh, what change it's bringing about in your mind and in your heart. Amen? All right, I'm ready. I'm, I'm, ready, to, uh, I'm ready to dig into this book. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you'd watch over us. Um, in the coming weeks, Lord, this, this book would be living and active in our lives, that it would pierce our hearts, God. Lord, that you would reorder uh, even our thought processes, Lord, by your word. Help us to truly practice uh, the kind of reading that, uh, that, that put this book inside of, of Jesus' heart and mind and inside of Paul's heart and mind. And as a result, Lord, I pray that we'd, be better to, that we'd be better equipped to articulate who you are and what you're about. Um, but even more than that, Lord, I pray that we would, be, uh, we would draw closer to you, that we would know you more, that we would know how your heart ebbs and flows as it relates to your people, that we would know your emotions, God, that we would know how you view us, both in, in the compassionate sense, but also in the sense of judgment. That we would know what you like about our lives and what you don't like about our lives, God. And Lord, that you would purify us. That this book of Isaiah would be a burning coal from your altar and you would touch our lips with it, Father. And purge us. Lord, wash us in the pure water of your word so that we can be a spotless bride before you. We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Go marinate in Isaiah.